when filling out a resume for a job, there are several parts of that resume that are extremely important to the employer. Now, all of that information should be somewhat important, right? Or there'd be no real need to include it in a resume, but there are certain areas that are, that are more important. One area is job experience. This is the section on the resume where you list your previous jobs, maybe give a brief description of those former jobs and you tell how long you worked at a particular job. This is important to the employer because they want to know, one, if you have had a, a job or jobs in the past that are similar to the one you're applying for, and they also want to see how long you worked at each job to get an idea of how devoted you might be as an employee. Another area of concern for some employers is education. Certain positions call for a certain level of education, so that's important as well. But one of the most important parts of the resume come at the very end. What comes at the end of a resume? Anybody know? Your references, right. The references section of your resume is very important to your employer because though they want to hear from you about your experience and your skills, it's also very important for them to hear these things from someone else. Someone who knows you, but not just anyone, right? Not just any reference will do. It's important for you to have good, credible people listed representing you. I guarantee you that most employers don't care near as much about what an old high school buddy has to say about you as they do a previous employer. And what's even more helpful is when you have someone listed that that employer knows and trusts. So in order to land a good job, a good reference or two or three is key. And any employer will tell you it's not wise to go into an interview and submit a resume without having good, credible references. They will tell you it's not wise to go and stand alone on your own merit. It's also important when you have someone representing you that it's someone credible as well. And believers, the same is true for us spiritually. Scripture is clear that we are not to try and stand before God on our own without God, relying upon our own merit. Scripture is clear that we as people possess no desirable qualities whatsoever as a result of the fall apart from God. We, we possess nothing that makes us worthy of His acceptance. Therefore, we need someone else to stand for us, right? We need someone credible, someone recognizable, someone accomplished, someone we know, someone who knows us, someone who knows God, someone who will stand for Him on our behalf. Scripture tells us who that certain someone is. We learn who that certain someone is in the book of Hebrews. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 7. 
We are continuing our series through Hebrews entitled Jesus is Greater. This is a message that we're getting into today. The message today is a message that the audience of the book of Hebrews desperately needed to be reminded of. They needed to be reminded that Jesus is greater. Remember we said that the writer of Hebrews is writing to a Jewish Christian audience who are drifting spiritually. They are drifting from Christ, drifting from the Christian faith. They are considering other beliefs and practices, and they are considering re-embracing old Jewish beliefs and practices, and they're holding some of those up on par with and even greater than Christianity and Christ himself. And the writer of Hebrews is writing to them, telling them, don't do that. Don't do that. He's calling for them to not drift, to not look away from or beyond Jesus, but to consider him. He's calling for them to look to Jesus, to continue to trust in him and cling to him and abide in him. Why? Because Jesus is supreme over everyone and everything. He is God's supreme form of revelation. He is greater than the Old Testament prophets, greater than angels, greater than Abraham, greater than Moses, greater than Joshua. He holds a superior title. He has accomplished a superior work in saving us, and he provides an even greater rest than what was provided for the Jews when they entered into the land of promise being led by Joshua. Toward the end of Hebrews 4, we moved into a section of Hebrews we said is really the heart of the book of Hebrews, and it is the teaching that Jesus is also greater than the Jewish priests. He is from a greater order of priests than Aaron because his priesthood precedes that of Abraham. He is greater than Abraham. He is also, because he's greater than Abraham, greater than everyone who comes after Abraham. He's greater than Levi, greater than Aaron, greater than all the priests that come from Aaron. He is our supreme priest. He is our great high priest. And the author of Hebrews camps out in this point Because though the Jews viewed the priest as God's great instruments of revelation, though they viewed the angels as God's great heavenly messengers, and Abraham as God's great patriarch, and Moses as God's great deliverer, and Joshua as the one who led God's people into a great rest, the office of high priest was the most sacred and most revered of all offices held by the Jews. At this time and this day, there was not a more exalted position that could be held among men than the office of high priest among the Jewish people. We said that in New Testament times, the high priest had incredible power. He was the head of Sanhedrin. Though there were thousands of Pharisees There are only 70 plus one in the Sanhedrin. And the high priest was the plus one. He was was the head of this group. He was the cream of the crop. He had top position. 
He was also respected in the Jewish community because he had a supreme task to perform every year. Throughout Jewish history, on a certain day, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter in to the innermost part of the temple, the most holy place. That was the earthly meeting place of God and man. And he entered in, and he would take the blood of the animal, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat, the earthly throne of God, as a sin offering for the Jewish people. That's why this office, the office of high priest, was, was so sacred, so important to the Jewish people. The Jewish people, you see, they understood their, their sin and their need for their sin to be covered. And they understood their complete inability to atone for their own sin. They understood their need of a high priest to stand before God on their behalf. And this Jewish Christian audience in the book of Hebrews was beginning to feel this way again as well. Though they had given their lives to Christ, they were wrestling with whether or not they needed to still take part in these Jewish ceremonies and look to and rely upon these sacrifices offered up by the Jewish high priest. This is very interesting. We said that this book was probably written around A.D. 65, okay? History tells us five years later, the temple is destroyed in A.D. 70. And at that time, after the temple is destroyed, that's the end of the priesthood. Basically, that's the end of their function, the function of the high priest. There was no place for them to do it. There had been... 83 high priests from Aaron up until this time. So the, the priesthood is still in place for a little while longer, but unbeknownst to this Jewish audience, the temple was going to be destroyed and this office was going to be done away with shortly after. The author of Hebrews is writing to them, trying to help them with this showing them that a supreme priest has come. That supreme priest is who? Jesus, right? And he has accomplished what the other priests could never do, nor were ever meant to do. This was, was important for the Jewish people in this day to hear because many Jews in this day, they failed to realize that without Jesus, the work that the high priest had done year after year was all for nothing. It's all for nothing. The writer of Hebrews tells us that. Hebrews 10.4, he says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's pretty clear, right? He says in Hebrews 10.11, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. High priest can never take away sin. He could not destroy the works of the devil. He could not conquer sin and death, usher God's people into his presence. That's why he had to stand daily 
At his service, there was no place to sit in the temple. Did you know that? They didn't have time to sit. They had to stay busy at work daily at this service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. Christ is different. He's supreme. In one single sacrifice, he did all of those things and then sat down at the right hand of the Father on high. This here is the main point the writer of Hebrews is making. Jesus is a greater priest. He is our supreme priest. The Jews always felt as if the Aaronic priesthood was supreme. Nothing better. They felt as if the, the, the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, was what was supreme. But the author of Hebrews makes the point here at the beginning of Hebrews 7 that there is, in fact, a superior order of priests. An order that precedes the Levitical priesthood. And that was the priesthood of Melchizedek. He's mentioned briefly in Genesis 14, also in Psalm 110. But what is said about him in those few short verses, and especially what is said about him here in Hebrews 7, is profound. He stands in authority over Abraham. He precedes the Jewish People. He is king, but was also priest of the Most High God, the one true God. And Abraham, the patriarch, the first father, pays an offering to Melchizedek and receives a blessing from him. And we're, we learned last week, the one who gives the blessing is superior to the one who receives it. It was King David who later mentions Melchizedek in Psalm 110, verse 4, and says that when the Messiah comes, he will not be like the priest from the Levitical line, but will be better. He says he'll be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, that is very important because this shows that God had designed all along for the Aaronic priesthood to be temporary, to be eventually come to an end, be set aside for a superior priest and priesthood. Jesus was not a plan B. Never was. He was always the only plan, right? When the Messiah comes, he will not be like the priest from the Levitical line, but will be better. He will be better. From the time the Aaronic priesthood was established, it was inferior to the priesthood of Melchizedek. So the writer of Hebrews, to destroy this false view of the superiority of the priest of Aaron is appealing to Jewish history, to Scripture, to King David himself, and he is reminding them of the superiority of the priesthood of Melchizedek and is saying that Jesus Christ comes from this order. He is like this priest and is therefore greater than Aaron. He is a better priest. So get this. Biblical history proves Jesus' priesthood is better. Extra-biblical history proves that Jesus' priesthood is better because the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. King David, under the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit, proves that Jesus is greater. And the writer of Hebrews gives proof that Jesus' priesthood is better. I would say that's some hefty evidence right there, right? We're going to see more of that in verses 11 through 19 of Hebrews 7. Now, before we get into this, I really want to draw your attention to verse 19. Skip down to verse 19. Our passage and this message is really built around this verse. The writer of Hebrews says this, 
For the law made nothing perfect. That's pretty clear, right? But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Now, I want you to underline the phrase, we draw near to God. That right there is the bottom line on Christianity. That is the aim of the Christian faith. That is the design of God for Christianity. He has done all that he has done. He has sent his son. His son has done all that he has done for this reason, to bring us to God, to grant us access to God so that we can draw near to him through faith alone and Christ alone. Y'all know how things started for us, right? Man in the very beginning had a very good beginning. We had, we had a good start. We had access to God. But man sinned against God and ruined and wrecked God's perfect world, perfect creation, and that perfect relationship that man enjoyed with God. But from that time on, God has been actively at work through his people and ultimately through his Christ, opening the way back up into his presence. That's what Christianity is all about. That is the real aim, the goal of the faith, to bring us to God. Now, how can we have access to God? How can we draw near to Him? The author of Hebrews makes it very clear. So does God through the authors, other authors in the New Testament. It's only made possible through Jesus. Look at Hebrews 9.12. Hebrews 9.12. The writer of Hebrews tells us, Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. We can enter into God's presence. We can draw near to him through the blood of Jesus Christ. Only by his perfect sacrifice at Calvary, through Christ's blood, a way to God has been opened up and we can enter in to God's presence. We can draw near to him by simply placing our faith and trust in Christ alone. Aaron's priests couldn't do that. Their sacrifices couldn't take away sin. No matter what they did, what continued to hang in the temple as they continued to minister? The veil, right? That signified that separation between God and man. The veil was never removed while those old high priests continued to function. They could enter in once a year, but they had to go in and get out quickly. They couldn't pull it back. They couldn't take the veil down, and they could not bring anyone in with them. That all changed with Jesus. Remember, we talked about this in Matthew 27. We're told that while Christ hung on the cross, the veil in the temple that covered the Holy of Holies was ripped from the top to the bottom. God took his finger and he ripped that veil from top to bottom, signifying that the way had been opened up through Christ's priestly work. A way had been opened up to God once again. Christ's priesthood, his great work as our king priest and perfect sacrifice was better. This passage in Hebrews 7, 11 through 19 clearly shows this truth. Let's take the few minutes we have left to look at it. I know that was a lengthy introduction, all right? But uh, we're going to go through these points pretty quickly. I'll get you out before uh, one, okay? All right. This passage divides nicely into two parts. 
One deals with the imperfection of the inferior priesthood, and the other deals with the perfection of the superior priesthood, okay? So let's first look at the imperfection of the inferior priesthood. Look at verse 11. Now, if perfection had been made attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? This is a very simple argument. He basically says if the Levitical priesthood was perfect, there would be no need to replace it. Okay? If Aaron's priesthood brought it all, was completely sufficient, who needs the priesthood of Jesus? We said a moment ago, perfection had not been attained through the works of the Levitical priest, right? Why? Because the priests weren't perfect and their sacrifices were insufficient. Now, we said a few weeks ago, and we learned here, that the Levitical priesthood served a very important purpose. We're told that people received the law. and We learn in Scripture that through law comes a knowledge of sin, right? Through the law. So people learned under the Levitical priesthood through God's law about their sinfulness and their need to be forgiven and restored to God. Think about it. Every time they walked past that bloody scene, that was a reminder to them of their sin and that their sin had not yet been dealt with. They continued to see when the tabernacle was erected that it was just a bloody scene all the time. Same with the temple, where the temple stood. It was a reminder of their sin and their need of salvation. And the priests could not take care of that sin. They didn't have the power to do so. Look back at verse 19 again. Look at the parenthesis. He says, the law makes nothing perfect. Now, it's not meaningless. It shows us our sin, our need for salvation, but cannot save us. It shows us the problem, but cannot provide the solution. The law shows us our sin, but can't take away our sin and grant us access to God. The old system showed that man needs to be restored to God, but could not provide that restoration. It had to come from somewhere else. Look at verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Because the Aaronic priesthood simply addressed the problem of man's sin and separation from God and showed the need for man to be forgiven and made right with God but could not provide any solutions to the problem, there was a need for a change of priests and a different priesthood. And because that was changed, the law pertaining to the priesthood was changed as well, right? Because of Christ's accomplished work. That's why we don't, don't today make treks to the temple. That's why we don't do religious pilgrimages every year to the Holy Lands, thankfully. And don't have to offer up sacrifices and abide by all the ceremonial laws. All of those laws pertaining to the temple sacrifice in the Old Testament. The priesthood and laws pertaining to the priesthood have changed, right? Obviously, look around. It's changed. There has been an out with the old and in with the better with Jesus. Look at verses 13 and 14. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which 
No one has ever served at the altar. Verse 14. For it is, it is evident that our Lord has descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. We've talked about this already, but he comes back to it, so let's come back to it. Jesus did not come from the priestly tribe of Levi, from the household of priests, the household of Aaron, but he came from the tribe of kings. He came from the tribe of Judah, from the household of David. No one from Jesus' family line had ever served at the altar. Priestly responsibilities were reserved in the Old Testament for that line of priests, the Levitical line. We talked about that. Moses did not say anything about priests from Judah because at that time there was another order in place, the Levitical order. And the author of Hebrews is just really hammering home this point here once again to show that Jesus is from a different order. The old has been done away with. It's been replaced by an older yet superior order. The old priesthood needed to be replaced. It was inferior and imperfect. God knew this from the beginning, which is why he sent his perfect son to establish a superior priesthood, to, to come in this line of priests that we learn about in Genesis 14 from Melchizedek. All right, so we've talked about the imperfection of the inferior priesthood. Now let's end by talking about the perfections of a superior priesthood. Look at verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. He's saying here when Christ comes, God's plan to send a superior priest becomes clear. It, it becomes clear that the Levitical priesthood is to be replaced when Christ comes in the likeness of Melchizedek. It is evident that a perfect priest from a superior priesthood has come to replace the imperfect and inferior one. And what does that mean when he says has come in the likeness of Melchizedek? Well, you can get online, all right, and listen to our sermons from the past. We have, we have spent a lot of time talking about Melchizedek already, and he continues to go back to it. But listen, remember that the writer of Hebrews was going to talk about Melchizedek earlier, and he took a break from that, right? He says, you're not mature enough to deal with this, and he had to deal with some issues with dealing with their maturity. But then he comes back. So listen, focusing in on this teaching about Melchizedek is for the mature. It's for the mature. It's good that we're studying this, according to the writer of Hebrews. All right? So keep that in mind. But we don't have time to go into all the details about Melchizedek, but I will give you a brief summary of what this means. What it means when it says that a priest has arisen in the likeness of Melchizedek is this. It means that Christ's priesthood, remember this, is universal, not national, right? Aaron's was national, his is universal. Christ acted as a priest for all peoples who trust in him alone for salvation. The priest of Aaron acted on behalf of the Jewish people. That's what we learn when we're told Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God. He just represented men before God, right? 
Christ is the same way. His priesthood was universal. Christ's priesthood was also a royal priesthood, just like Melchizedek's. He was a king and a priest. He came as a conquering king, right? To conquer sin and death through his priestly work through his death and resurrection. Christ's priesthood was also a priesthood of righteousness and peace. Though Christ was tempted like we are, he was without sin. He lived the perfect life, a righteous life in our place. And at Calvary, he was made sin and he bore the punishment for our sin at the cross, satisfied God's wrath so that he could offer up his righteous life in exchange for our sinful one. He also appease God's wrath through laying his life down and allowing himself to be crushed by God for us. Because of that great work, we who trust in Christ alone for salvation can be forgiven of sin and restored to God and be at peace with God through Jesus' person and work as our great peace. It's great news, isn't it? Lastly, we also learn that Christ's priesthood was an eternal priesthood. Aaron's was temporal. Christ is our permanent priest. And in him we are secure forever because we have one who ever lives to stand before God for us. Therefore, this priesthood will not be replaced like the priesthood of Aaron. And that is great news for us believers, right? That's why we affirm here eternal security. Once you've been changed from the inside out, you are safe and secure in Christ. He is our permanent priest. His priesthood was no temporary thing. It's a permanent thing. It's eternal. Look at verse 16. Jesus has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Verse 17. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Boy, this is great. Notice here, you know the Old Testament Jewish priests, you know how they got to be priests? By a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. In other words, to be a priest, you had to be a pure descendant of Aaron. There were also all of these physical requirements that, that had to be met as well. We learn about those in Leviticus 21. But all of those requirements were physical. They were just fleshly regulations. Didn't really matter what one was spiritually. That's why you had some pretty worldly and wicked priests. And it started with Aaron, right? Remember when Moses is receiving the law, what's Aaron doing? leading God's people and breaking those laws, right? Started with, with Aaron. The Old Testament priesthood had little to do with character and ability and personality and holiness. The requirements were physical. And when one's time as a priest was over, when, when that, that term was done, when it was served or when they died, they were replaced by someone else. Other physical priests took their place. Jesus was a different kind of priest. Look at verse 16 again. Jesus has become a priest, not on the basis of the physical, but by what? By the power of an indestructible life. 
We have said that the priesthood of Jesus precedes the Aaronic priesthood, right? It was in place before Aaron, and Jesus comes. He becomes one of us, a priest of this priesthood, and is still a priest today. Though he died, he rose again. And he is our permanent priest who ever lives, again, to stand before God on our behalf. Again, in verse 17, Christ is compared once again to Melchizedek. He wants us to get this. He wants his audience to get this. Based upon what we have in Scripture about Melchizedek, we learn that Melchizedek was not a priest by pedigree or physicality. He was a priest by character, right? He was priest of the Most High God, is what we're told of him. There's nothing mentioned of Melchizedek's beginning or end. He's a type of Christ, meaning the details about his life that the Spirit of God gives us through Moses paints a picture of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And we learn through Melchizedek, through his example, through that illustration, that Jesus is our permanent priest who is eternal, whose life is indestructible. Amen? Look at this quote from John MacArthur, what he said about Christ's priesthood. He says, Christ was a priest by eternal power. He had not a physical claim, but an eternal claim. And thus, by his eternal power, he can do what no priest could ever do. He can give us access to God. That's the point the writer of Hebrews makes here. And in verses 18 and 19, he gives us a little bit by way of summary. It says in verse 18, For on the one hand, the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Boy, those are some strong words. The old priesthood, the old sacrificial system has been replaced. It's been done away with. Why? Verse 19 again. For the law made nothing perfect. It showed the issue, could not provide the solution. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. That's what Christ has provided for us, believers. He has provided us with a better hope through His person and work. He has made a way for us to draw near to God through His life, death, and resurrection. Christ has made a way for us, sinners fallen through faith alone, in Him alone, to be made righteous, to be forgiven, so that we could draw near to God and be restored to Him. Maybe you're here this morning, you're like the person I explained at the beginning. You're trying to go at life on your own without any sort of representation whatsoever. Maybe you're here and you believe that your works will, will matter, will make the cut. You believe that you can stand before God on your own merit. The way you're living is good enough. Listen, God is crystal clear throughout His Word that your works will not cut it. You fall infinitely short of a perfect God, perfect and holy and righteous God. Praise be to God that He provides for us what He requires of us. Though we possess no desirable qualities whatsoever, we possess nothing that makes us worthy of God's acceptance. 
God has sent one who has come to stand for us and not just anyone, this great high priest we've been talking about today, Jesus. If you're here and Christ is not the Lord of your life, you're not trusting in him, you need Christ. You need him to stand for you. You need his righteous life applied to your life. You need to be forgiven of your sin. You need to be restored to God. If you've never made that decision, I pray you would today. Pray you would bow the knee to King Jesus. I pray that you would give your life up and over to him. Look to him. Believe upon him. Trust in him and follow him, the Lord Jesus, as your high priest today and be saved. Let's pray.